so we now come to the second part, uh, which is Christ and the saints saving Israel. So what we've uh, just been looking at uh, has covered the preparation of the saints, their judgment and the Elijah work. And now what we're going to open with, I'm going to go back to that overall time frame and you can now see where we have got to on that time frame. Because again, I think it will help us to hang all these uh, jigsaw pieces together. And then we'll look at how the nations are gathered against Jerusalem, how Israel is destroyed as a nation. And then look at this work described in Revelation chapter 10 as the work of the rainbowed angel, Christ and the saints coming forth to save Israel from their enemies and the events that happen at Bosra, the Mount of Olives, at Jerusalem, and then the Armageddon battle itself. And that leads them to recognise their Messiah, and then proceeds the work of regathering Israel. And the kingdom is then finally fully established. So going back to that chart, this is where we got to in our first talk. Um, which is not very far on the, the things on the chart here, but we looked at the call to judgment, we looked at acceptance, rejection, we looked at the large work in the South countries instructed. So what we're to look at is the time of peace and safety as far as Israel is concerned, uh, a situation which we believe is unfolding before our eyes. Uh, it is a time when Europe, and we won't particularly be looking at this, but Europe is now Brexit has taken place, is beginning to come together um, under the Catholic Church. Uh, the United States of Europe is becoming a reality. And um, some trigger causes the nations to come against Israel. And we'll look at that trigger. Uh, and sadly, Jerusalem is in enemy hands again. Times of the Gentiles haven't yet been fulfilled. Although Israel possesses Jerusalem, we know that one more time she's going to lose control of Jerusalem. And only after that will the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So the details of the march into Israel and the Battle of Armageddon and the defeat of Gog. And then we'll look at how the kingdom is established in Israel. Um, while that is going on, uh, there will be a regrouping under the papacy of the European nations who are opposed to Israel's new king. Um, the work for the saints is to be the warriors, the preachers, the rulers. Their work in earnest will now begin with a call to scattered Israel to be regathered back to their land. And we'll look at that process. Meanwhile, war in Europe, as the in the language of Daniel chapter 7, the fourth beast, the Roman beast is taken away, is slain, sorry, and the power of the first three beasts is taken away because they submit to the Lord Jesus. And so step by step, the kingdom will extend until every nation will have submitted or been defeated and destroyed, and then the kingdom will be established worldwide. So nations gathered against Jerusalem. These are well-known words from Zechariah chapter 12. Um, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people, or peoples, revised version, roundabout, 
when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. So not only Jerusalem, the center, the capital, but the land uh, is being besieged by these nations. But it turns out that Jerusalem is a burdensome stone. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Their triumph will be short-lived. They think that they have now mastery over these wretched Jews, but they shall find that uh, Jerusalem is indeed a burdensome stone to them. Now we know it's Ezekiel in chapter 38 that lists the countries that are Gog's companions who come against Jerusalem. Nine countries are listed, Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Jubal, Persia, Ethiopia, Goma and Tagama. Um, and so they're headed by a leader who is called Gog. And if we just map out as best we can, um, Magog, we associate with the Germany, Polish region. And so if we had time, we could trace how uh, Magog moved across to that region, but we haven't got time. We're just doing a snapshot, as it were. Rosh is the ancient name for Russia. Meshek is the ancient name for Moscow. Tubal is the ancient name for Tobolsky, Tobol, the River Tobol. Uh, interestingly, Moscow is the political center, and Tobol, and that region there, the Siberian region, is where much of the mineral and the uh, economic wealth uh, of Russia lies in the gas and the oil fields. Persia, of course, is uh, Iran of today. Ethiopia, a bit of a question mark. Ethiopia of today is to, a bit to the south of where I put that arrow. Uh, Ethiopia of the past was what we today would call Sudan. So whether it's referring to Sudan or whether it's referring to the Ethiopia today, uh, can't be abundantly sure on that point. Libya doesn't seem to have moved in history, uh, still there. And Goma, the Gauls, we associate with France. And Tagama of the far north is the area which we associate with um, Georgia, Armenia, and that region there by the Caspian Sea. So just putting all those together and bearing in mind that Russia is a very big country, it's a, a big chunk of the world, and we'll put that onto another map in a moment. But the point I just want to make is that these are all non-Semitic countries. Um, most of them are descended from Japheth, two of them from Ham, and all of them very much under uh, a link with Russia. So if we just go to genealogy, we can see that Goma, Magog, Badai, which is Persia, Jubal, Meshech, Tyrus, which is Ross, and Tagama are all descended from Japheth. Um, and Kush and Fut, Ethiopia and Libya are descended from Ham. So no descendants of Shem there. There are no true Arab countries involved. This is an association of Christian in the main countries with a few Muslim countries. Uh, the Muslim countries are, of course, Libya um, and uh, Persia. 
Now, the question mark over Ethiopia, if Ethiopia, we say Sudan, that is a Muslim country, if it's Ethiopia of today, then that is a Christian country, but that matters not. Majority Christian countries with some Muslim countries banding together to come against Israel. Now, when we come to the New Testament, that was Ezekiel, when we move on to the New Testament and come to Revelation chapter 16, which is the time period in which we are in. Andrew, I think that was sent at the door. Um, that we have the beast and the dragon and the false prophet. And this is what we see developing today. Um, the dragon we associate with Russia, the beast we associate with Europe, and the false prophet we associate with the uh, papacy. And so this is the period when these are the countries which, or nations, areas, that Revelation 16 tells us come to the battle of Armageddon. So it's the same picture, but just using symbols which uh, are used in Revelation. If we jump back to Daniel, we're in this very interesting, Daniel chapter 2 and the image of Nebuchadnezzar, we're in this very interesting situation of the development of the feet. The legs came to an end, uh, the western leg came to an end in 1918, at the end of the World War I, when the last of the Habsburg monarchs, Charles I, uh, came to an end, and the uh, Holy Roman Empire, as it were, finished. Hitler tried to revive the Holy Roman Empire, but wasn't successful. It wasn't his time. It wasn't his turn. And then for 43 years, while Britain was a member of the EU, it held back the EU in making its preparations for the United States of Europe, the modern beast system. But now here we are, we're now post-Brexit, so we're in the foot stage. We're seeing Europe develop. We're seeing the growing power of the influence of religion in Europe and the growing influence of the papacy in world affairs. And if we look on the other side, similar thing. The Eastern leg came to an end at the same time, end of World War II, with the murder of Tsar Nicholas II. Again, there was a holding back through communism. Uh, now in 1991, when communism was swept away, it enabled the birth of the foot. Uh, the Russian church, working with the authority with Putin, who models himself on the czars. We have a recreation of the situation in Russia as it was a long time ago. And again, what is so interesting is that these events of 1918, the ending of the legs, ready for the transition to the feet, marked the beginning of the establishment of Israel, because that was when Russia, when Britain drove the Turk out of the Palestine, enabled Israel to resettle and eventually led to uh, the rise of Israel, which is going to be the center of the attention for these two legs to come and destroy. So an interesting time. Now the feature about the toes is that they're made of clay and iron, a strange, unreliable mixture of democracy and authoritarianism. 
the authority of iron, of Rome, of the church, Church of Rome, Russian uh, Orthodox Church, uh, very much holds the democracies of Europe and Russia together. So interesting time that we're in. So if we put the symbols of Revelation, the false prophet and uh, Babylon the Great corresponds to uh, Babylon of old, represents the direction, the eyes and the mouth, as it were, that directs the operation of the two feet who come against Israel. And so we have the dragon and the beast power. But those are part of the toes which are attached to the old legs. So we have the dragon of uh, Revelation chapter 12. And on the other side, in chapter 13, we have the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. Uh, and what we're having redeveloping now is a recreation of the beasts of the past. So what triggers this gathering together against Jerusalem? Well, we witnessed, haven't we, in the past month, a, a big surge of anti-Semitism in Europe, in Russia, around the world, uh, even in this country. The world media is against Israel. And very prominent among them in this country is the BBC and The Guardian in America, New York Times, very strongly, very biased, report abysmally uh, happenings in Israel. And this isn't surprising because this is the end result of something that the papacy set in motion way back in 1957, when Pope Pius XII called together the Second World Congress of lay apostolate and said to the laity, you go and use your influence in the places where you work to forward the interests of the church. And journalism and the media is one of their success stories. The number of media people who are Roman Catholic, who just quietly influence the way things go, to support the church's viewpoint because the Vatican has always uh, resisted Israel. They wouldn't support Israel in going back to their land because as far as they're concerned, uh, they have inherited all the promises which God made to Israel. Uh, Israel blew it when they crucified Messiah, crucified God in their Trinitarian eyes. And the church now is the fulfillment of the promises. So, when Israel comes back to the land and possesses Jerusalem, this is a step too far. Uh, and both Russia and uh, the Vatican very strongly want to get control of Jerusalem. We shall look at that. And so I speculate, and this can only be a speculation because we're not told what is the trigger that brings the nations suddenly to come against Jerusalem. But it could well be that the Elijah work um, among the religious Jews in Samaria and Judea brings about a new zeal in Israel um, and causes some of the zealots to take actions against these churches and mosques, which are 
so abundant in Israel, they will realize that this is an abomination in the land. This is where false doctrines are taught. And it is not difficult, is it, to see that, you know, if a fire bombing of a church or a mosque would so rapidly gather together the Pope and Putin would come together, resolve their differences between Orthodox religion in Russia and the Catholic religion, they'll put their differences aside to gather together to come to deal with this situation. And also we can speculate that, as we know, that these judgments have gone, they're likened to the birth pangs of a woman, so they're going to, you know, COVID was bad enough, but that was just the first pang. They're going to get more frequent, they're going to get more intense. And you can see that the Jews are going to be blamed. It's amazing how often Jews are blamed for things that they have no responsibility for. In a sense, there is a linkage, isn't there, between Israel and the coming judgments. Um, but the world may well uh, be feeling very anti-Semitic. say if some action against church or mosque, then that will be the last straw. Now, we know that not all nations will come against Jerusalem. There is a body, um, which Ezekiel describes in his chapter, which tells us all the nations that come against Jerusalem, tells us in verse 13 of this group of countries, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish with all their young lions, who are opposed to this invasion. I'm not going to spend time on this. This is what we deal with at Prophecy Days. But we associate Sheba and Dedan with these countries, which are largely making uh, peace agreements uh, with Israel. Uh, the Abraham Accords, still waiting for Sheba, uh, Yemen, to, um, for the rebels to be driven out and to come under Saudi control. But that will happen. Um, and the merchants of Tarshish, uh, traditionally, historically, was associated with Tyre. Isaiah 23 tells us that Tyre is going to come to an end, but not come to an end. That power is going to be taken afar off, and that afar off ends up in Britain. Uh, and Britain is the latter-day Tarshish power, and she is associated with young lions, the Commonwealth countries who in two world wars and today are making trade deals with Britain, uh, want to work with Britain. Britain is now emerging as a maritime power as it was before. It's so exciting to see all these things coming to place just at the right time, just before our eyes. We've patiently waited and now it's all coming together. We see it's unfolding. So, I'm just going to map. Um, Israel has her friends, these people in Egypt and the uh, Arabian Peninsula, uh, Algeria and Morocco, uh, friendly, uh, India, friendly, little tiny Bhutan uh, signed up to the Abraham Accords. Uh, Britain, of course, and off this map, America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, all friendly. But there's a big number of nations who are opposed to what Israel stands for. Uh, and a Jewish state for Jews. Lots of other countries are 
for their own people. But because it's Jews, that doesn't go down well, does it, in this woke generation? And so we know that foremost of those who are opposed to Israel at the moment, Iran and uh, Turkey. We know from Ezekiel that Europe is going to be opposed and Revelation 2 tells us the beast system is going to be opposed. The dragon system, Gog, Russia is going to be opposed. Um, and uh, very much uh, the conflict between Israel and Hamas has triggered this anti-Israel feeling in these countries. And so very much the dragon, the beast and the false prophet we see working to come against Jerusalem. And of course, last but not least on the list there is Libya. So Gog is the head of the invading armies. And again, we see the accuracy of prophecy. Currently, Israel and Russia are good friends. Putin has his historic reasons as he was brought up as a child. He was greatly helped by an Israeli family. He's never forgotten their kindness to him as a only child. And he has a great admiration for the Jews. But Ezekiel says he's going to think an evil thought and come against them. So that tells us that we should expect to find the latter-day Gogian power, Russia, to be at this stage friendly to Israel, but then change his mind. The power of religion, if something's happening to churches and mosques, that will override his friendship. That will be a step too far for him. And not only does Putin and the Russian state want to retake Jerusalem, they very much want to take Constantinople, uh, today's Istanbul, because it was from here in the ninth century that the Orthodox religion came via Kiev, today's Ukraine, then up into Russia, and Russia became Orthodox um, from its stemming from its links to Constantinople. So again, when in 1453, the Ottoman Turks swept in and drove out the Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire, which possessed Constantinople and took control of Constantinople and shut the um, cathedral there, and chained it into a mosque. Then ever since, the Russians have wanted to have control. And if you go to Russia today, especially in Moscow, this is a picture on them. Um, uh, the Kremlin, you'll see mounted on churches, crosses over a crescent. And if you ask your tourist guide, what does that mean? They'll say, well, we're looking for the day when Christianity will triumph over Islam. So this is something, and they have tried in the past to take Constantinople in the end of the 19th century. Uh, there was an effort to take Constantinople. There was an effort in World War I to take Constantinople. The time hadn't come. The time is about to come. And so we're going to look at the evidence afterwards. It seems to be putting the cart before the horse, but I thought if we map it first and then look at the evidence. 
So what we're waiting for is Russia to come down and take Constant uh, to take Turkey and take control of Constantinople to avenge that shame of 1453. So we're told it'll come forth with many ships. It'll also come with land armies uh, to take Turkey and will take control of Turkey and Constantinople. And then we'll overflow onwards and come down to take Crete, where America has her military base, and Cyprus, where Britain has her military base. And uh, then we'll just change the map, move it up a bit. Um, from there, she comes down into Egypt, both with ships and with land forces, so that Egypt is taken. Uh, she also comes down into Iraq and ships again go across and send troops into Iraq so that she secures the northern flank, Turkey, the eastern flank, Iraq, the southern flank, Egypt, and then comes up and takes Jerusalem. So again, we change the map. Um, we know that Ammon, Moab and Eden escape so that Gog and his forces, his companions, their centre is Jerusalem and Jordan, which by this time will be under probably the control of Britain, certainly and so on the part of those nations which are friendly to uh, Israel, uh, they escape. And so uh, we'll see the point about that, so that this will be a place for Jews to flee to when uh, Jerusalem is taken. And we're told that the Ethiopians and the Libyans are assisting. So again, we change the map and draw further out. Christ and the saints are down there in Sinai, out of the way as it were. Um, all the shaded area that I just put a shade on is under the control of Gog and his companions, uh, and the lighter area there is under the control of the um, Sheba Dedan, very much Britain in control here is the main power. So that, that's the situation, um, that's the scenario. Jerusalem has been taken um, and then Christ and the saints come to work. But, that, that's jumping on. So let's now look at the passages which provide the evidence for what we have just mapped. So I want us to turn to Numbers chapter 24. This is one of the oldest prophecies that we have in scripture. This is uh, the time when Israel is on the edge of the promised land. Balaam has, uh, Balak, sorry, has hired Balaam to come and curse Israel. And those curses are taken into blessings. And this is the final chapter, the final cursing, which turns into a blessing. And we read in Numbers chapter 24, we're just going to look at a few verses. So verse 7 is painting a picture. He, Yahweh, shall pour the water out of his buckets. His seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag. His kingdom shall be exalted. So like so many prophecies, this is telling us the end of the matter. When we've come to the end of this prophecy, 
then Israel's king will be higher than Agag. Now the Septuagint puts that as Gog. Agag was the traditional enemy of the Jews. Haman was an Agagite. So Agag, Gog, Zion's king is going to be higher than Gog or Agag because Zion's king is going to be victorious and exalted. So Balaam says to Balak, verse 14, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to your people in the latter days. And here we are 3,600 years on. Amazing interval of time. And yet this prophecy is so bang on. And so we jump to verse uh, 17. And he says, I see him referring to this coming king of Israel, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. A scepter shall arise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Seth. So he's saying there's going to be calamity for you, Moab, and all those who want to get rid of Israel, you are going to perish. And so we come to the actual final prophecy in verses 23 and 24. Balaam takes up his parable and says, Alas, who shall live when God doeth this? It's going to be such a terrible time. Ships shall from come from the coast of Kittim, shall afflict Asher, shall afflict Eber, and he, Amalek, shall perish forever. Now, Kittim is Cyprus, it also applies to Crete, those Mediterranean islands. Asher is the ancient name for Assyria, modern-day Iraq. Eber is where we get Hebrew uh, from, uh, is pointing to Israel. And Amalek is used of the enemies of Israel. Remember when the wilderness journey, early on in the wilderness, Amalek attacked the stragglers in the mound. Uh, Amalek was defeated by Israel. So here is a picture of the enemies of Israel being defeated. But they come by ship to Kittim, Asher, Eber, and then perish. Now that ties up with another prophecy, a thousand years later, the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel chapter 11. Again, let's just turn to it. It's up on the screen, but good to have it in front of us. Daniel chapter 11 is all about the um, unfolding history. Fascinating chapter, but they're just honing in at the end. And it tells us clearly in verse 40, this is about the time of the end. And the king of the south shall push at him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. Chariots, horsemen, many ships overflow, enter into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But Edom, Moab, and Ammon shall escape from his hands. So who is the him? Now, in the context that we've gone earlier, it's about the one that possesses Constantinople. It was originally the um, power of Rome 
the Byzantine Empire, which ruled as emperor of the Roman Empire while the Pope was in Jerusalem. So the one that possesses Constantinople is the hymn that is being referred to, the king. Now, at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push up him? Now, we take that as going back to 100 years ago when the British forces pushed against the modern day possessor of Constantinople, Turkey, drove the Turks out of the land. But I didn't get rid of that power. The power of the Turk was still there. So we're now moving into the future when the king of the north, now the king of the north originally was the one who possessed Syria. We know that Russia is the latter day king of the north, very much entrenched in Syria today, but not completely in control. And the king of the north is again going to uh, come against him. Who's the him? Turkey, like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. So that's what we saw. Turkey has got to be taken. Then he overflows and comes down. But Edom, Moab and Ammon escape. So Daniel goes on that he stretches his, forth his hand uh, against Egypt. It has power of the treasure of gold and silver and Egypt today is mining her ancient gold reserves. There's a lot of gold and silver there. Libyans and Ethiopians at his steps, but tidings out of the east and the north trouble him. Therefore, he goes forth with great fury to destroy and to utterly to make away many. So we have to say, well, what are the tidings? So if he's in Egypt, then tidings from the east would be the Arab nations who have formed an alliance and Britain now is very strongly at this time entrenched there. So he's upset at developments there. Tidings from the north would point to Jerusalem. Uh, and if my speculation was right, that things are happening in Jerusalem, churches and mosques are uh, in trouble, then you can understand how with great fury he comes forth to destroy the nation of Israel, to seize control. He's got Constantinople, now he wants Jerusalem. He comes forward. And we're told in the last verse that he plants the tabernacles of his palace. He makes this his headquarters. This is where he's going to rule the world, from between the seas in the glorious holy mountains. So that's Jerusalem, which is between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. So that's telling us of uh, the progress according to Daniel, which all dovetails in all these bits of jigsaw we can slot together. And so finally, um, Ezekiel has this to say, uh, words which are probably well known to us, that how Gog and all his companions are going to come like a storm, against a wall of a land of unwalled villages, dwelling safely without walls, having neither guard, sorry, bars nor gates to take a spoil and a prey. Um, a people that have been gathered out of the nations, got rich, dwell in the midst of the land. And we know 
how that's pointing to today. Israel has come back to their land. They've got roots. They've been gathered out of the nations. But what we don't see is them dwelling securely without walls, bars or gates. But that's we're beginning to see that happening, aren't we? And I believe that while we're at Sinai at judgment, that the final stages of that peace and safety, somehow the nations around Israel will guarantee security for Israel. Russia will be in agreement with that because she's got to think an evil thought after it. So before then, she's for this peace and safety. Um, and then, uh, as verses 15 and 16 say, she's going to come out of the north parts, many people with the riding upon horses, a uh, great company, a mighty army. And of course, uh, we don't expect them to come on literal horses, but that was the best military hardware of the day. They will come with their tanks and their ammunition and their aeroplanes and whatever uh, to come against Israel. And they'll come like a cloud to cover Israel. It's interesting, God acknowledges Israel as his people, though they are astray, as we sang in that hymn, you know, Zion's king is going to reign victorious. All this is happening according to God's will. But in the latter day, God's going to bring them. And notice, I will bring thee. Littered throughout uh, Ezekiel and Zechariah 12. I, I, this is God's word. God is going to draw them. They think they're doing it to defend their rights in Jerusalem. But God is drawing them in order that the heathen might know me when I am sanctified in thee, O God, before their eyes. So how is God sanctified in the eyes of the nations? Well, when Gog is destroyed and the enemies that have come are no more. So Zechariah just adds a little bit to the picture in chapter 13 um, of two thirds being cut off and dying, but the third being uh, left and being refined like silver and gold. So a time of great trouble for those who survive the invasion prior to the Battle of Armageddon, they are going through this refining process, which will make sure that they emerge as his jewels in that day. And uh, in that day, they will say, it is my people. They will say, Yahweh is my God. So that, that's what's got to unfold in the future. And chapter 14 tells us of gathering all nations against Jerusalem to battle, city being taken, houses rifled, half the city going to captivity. So a crushing of Israel. So these are the things. And little Israel is able to overcome all sorts of enemies, but faced with this almighty gathering of nations, they will be totally overwhelmed and will be humble because they have been trusting in their own defences, which they have designed. They've been trusting in their own strength, and they've got to be brought to realise they've got to trust in Yahweh. Many are killed. Many are taken prisoner of war, shipped off to Greece, John tells us. Many flee to Edom, Moab and Ammon. That's why God doesn't allow that area to be taken. It's a place of refuge for his people. And it will seem 
that Christianity has triumphed over Israel's God. Uh, we can picture a pilgrimage of the Pope to Jerusalem to thank him, to thank the Virgin Mary for the great deliverance given Jerusalem into their hands, uh, got rid of this nation of Israel's control. Now, how long a period it will be that the tabernacles we go, tabernacles we planted there, we're not told. It might be several months, it might be a year, it might be two years, but long enough for all God's preparation to have taken place. And then God's fury uh, comes. He will save his people. And so we go back to our map and we have Christ and the saints uh, at Sinai. Jerusalem and the area surrounding it is under the control of Gog and his companions. And Christ and the immortalized saints go forward. The first encounter is at Bosra, says Isaiah 34. And then from that first encounter, they go up and to the Mount of Olives and to Israel, Isaiah 63. And this is when the Mount of Olives splits Zechariah 14, uh, verse 4 tells us. And so this is the time of deliverance. Christ and the saints have gone forth to save Israel. And very much associated with this is an almighty earthquake. And we can see how God has made preparation for it. Israel straddles that great rift which runs down all the way down into Africa. Um, and the two plates, one moving in one direction and the other moving in the other. So very unstable. And it's the uh, experts say it's overdue for a big earthquake. Well, that big earthquake is going to come. And again, we can see how God has made preparation geologically for it. Because running through the Mount of Olives from east to west is a, a fault line. So that when we look at the Mount of Olives and we're now looking eastward, through that hill is a, a, a fault line. So that when Christ does come back and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, um, we're told in Zechariah chapter 14 that the Mount of Olives splits into two and this river caused from uh, water springing up from under Jerusalem flows down heals the Dead Sea. Um, that is an, a tremendous earthquake that can split a mountain into, it will uh, do so many things. Uh, first of all, it will elevate Jerusalem. We read of that in Zechariah 14, verse 10, how it's all going to be lifted up, the area around Jerusalem, so that when the temple is built in, on the site of Jerusalem, it will be visible to the nations coming up. It also not only a river in Jerusalem, but in Arabia and where the deserts are, underground water will come to the surface. And it speaks of abundant tree growth uh, and springs of water in desert places. Uh, how thankful Jews who fled for refuge to the wilderness area uh, will now have protection and cover and water. Um, and it will rid Jerusalem of all the tower blocks and the mosques and the churches and all the buildings there in order for the kingdom of God to have a clean start. 
And of course, that earthquake, um, many references that refer to the gods shaking the earth, sweeping it with a besom of destruction, says Isaiah, it will affect the world. Great terror as earthquakes crumble many buildings. And it will bring terror to uh, Gog and his companions who are in the land, who are suddenly faced with this almighty earthquake and this tremendous damage that has taken place in Israel. And so commences the Battle of Armageddon, the splitting of the Mount of Olives is the first strike. Uh, Armageddon, we see made up of armor, gay and don, a heap of sheaves in a valley for threshing or for judgment. And that's, Armageddon is only mentioned in Revelation chapter 14, but um, the concept of the threshing of the nations we find in uh, Revelation chapter, sorry, Revelation 16 is where Armageddon is. Uh, we find in Revelation chapter 14 and um, in Joel chapter 3, both makes references to the nations in Israel being threshed like sheaves. So Christ and the saints have almighty power, which they use. They use earthquake to split the mountain. Uh, Zechariah describes the spirit-directed plague, which just vaporizes people. Uh, Zechariah 14 also describes them fighting with each other. We, we had it, didn't we, in yesterday's readings of the Philistines, um, fighting each other. Same thing will happen. Gogan forces will fall out among themselves and start slaying themselves. Ezekiel talks about pestilence, blood, rain, hailstones, fire, brimstone, all the forces of nature God is going to direct to destroy Gog and his armies. Forces which the remnant in Israel will recognize are out of this world. They're not powers that Israel has been able to harness and use themselves. This is something totally different. And so we picture that when the remnant in Israel go to meet the leader of this force that has come and wrought this almighty victory over their enemies, they're going to come face to face with their Messiah. And in his hands and his feet are still the marks of crucifixion. Immortality hasn't taken that away, we know from the Gospels. And so we read this wonderful verse in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, how God's going to pour out his spirit, his promise that there will be an early rain in the day of Pentecost and the latter rains. God's spirit's going to be poured out on his people because they're going to be all righteous. They're going to be all righteous because they're going to look upon me whom they have pierced. Remember, this was written 600 years before the crucifixion. They shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And we see the wonderful way in which the Spirit caused Zechariah to write these words, because they didn't pierce me, God. They pierced his son. They shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his 
only son. So it shows this linkage between God and the son, the one who was slain. And they're going to mourn when suddenly they recognise, well, there's only one person that is allegedly alive and was crucified. And that's the Lord Jesus, whom we've rejected as being our Messiah for 2,000 years. And shame the chapter break, but Zechariah 13, verse 1, on that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. There's now a mighty river flowing out from uh, Jerusalem, not the little trickle of the Gihon spring, but a mighty river. And there the remnant of Israel, changed, chased, will enter into the new covenant exactly as they did on the day of Pentecost. And they will be in the same position as we are now, baptised into Christ, his brothers and sisters. And their hope will be a hope of the resurrection. First resurrection has taken place, but we know there is a second resurrection at the end of the millennium. And so the Jews have been spared, have been refined by what has happened to them will be a holy and a righteous nation, never more going astray. And the first task is to dispose of um, the bodies because there's total destruction of God's armies. Multitudes have come and perished. Seven months to bury the dead. People appointed to put marks where the bones because in Israel, Birds of prey rapidly strip the bodies, just leave the bones to be buried. So markers where bones are so that people come and they are buried. In Ezekiel chapter 39, the next chapter, which we really ought to read with chapter 38, because we're all part of it, tells us uh, in that day, I'll give to Gog a place of graves in Israel, the valley of the passengers. Now that word passenger is not a very good translation the Valley of Abarim. Now, Abarim is to the east of the Dead Sea. Now, I know that there's going to be mighty changes with, to the topography of this area, but to where, uh, to the east of where the Dead Sea is now, and we know the Dead Sea is still going to exist, but be elevated and turned into a living sea, but into a valley to the east of it is going to be a burial place for all these places, for all these bones, and I call it the Valley of Haman Gog. And Haman and Hamon, as in English in Hebrew, is very close, making that link with the enemies of Israel. And what this is, this is a, per a permanent memorial to the nations, uh, just like Ashwich is. Just turn with me um, to Isaiah chapter 66. Uh, it's the closing of Isaiah. It shall come to pass from one new moon to another. This is verse 23 of Isaiah 66. One Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, saith Yahweh. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. And they shall be an boring up to all flesh, the basis of Jesus' parable on, on the 
Gehenna. So this will be a memorial. Nations will see just what happens to those who try to stop Israel being saved from their enemies. So Israel is regathered. Their first step, they accept Jesus as their Messiah and King. And so the nucleus of the kingdom is set up. Interesting reference in Ezekiel, well, time is fast running out. Jerusalem will re be rebuilt as the temple and an administration center. There's to be a hotel city built to the south of it. So Jerusalem of the future is the temple and where the 12 disciples rule the 12 tribes of Israel, where the world is ruled, where the law goes forth from Zion. Gentiles will help in doing that, Isaiah 60 tells us, and finance it. Um, and the rest of Israel will need to be rebuilt because it's all been brought to ruins, uh, speaks of incredible fertility at this time. We know that Britain early submits on Psalm 45 and Isaiah 23. And Isaiah 23 and uh, Isaiah 60 says that God is going to use Britain's transport, its maritime ships to bring scattered Israel back to um, the land. But it's going to be a time of great trouble. Although Jesus is king over Israel, the nations that are left in Europe especially will be in uproar against the claims that this king Israel is making. And so for the Jews scattered, especially those in Europe, it'll be like in World War II. They will have a terrible time. They'll have to be brought out, uh, great fighting. Uh, and the Jews were blamed for uh, Gog's defeat. And I think and, uh, that they're going to return via Sinai. Now, I'm just going to uh, look at this passage which we read um, from Ezekiel chapter 20, because uh, it tells us about Israel's judgment for those that are not in the land. Those in the land have their judgment by the Gogin invasion. For those not in the land, they've got to be brought back, but they're not brought directly. And we read it, so I'm not going to spend much time, there isn't time to do it. But as it says in verse 35, I'm going to bring you into the wilderness of the people. and There I will plead with you, like as I pleaded um, in Sinai at the time of the Exodus. Verse 37, I'll cause you to pass under the rod. That's a, a shepherding term for separating sheep from goats. I'll purge out the rebels from among you. Um, they will not enter the land of Israel. And uh, they'll be brought into um, a covenant uh, with me um, and uh, they will serve me in verse 40 on my holy mountain so there's got to be a separation so all Jews are gathered from wherever they are and brought I believe to Sinai there they face their judgment and any Jews who won't accept Jesus as a Messiah and it's clear there will be those well they will perish only those that say yes, and again in Sinai, that river will flow again, I'm sure, uh, and Jews then will be baptised, 
uh, at Sinai into that water and then will be allowed to go back into the land to their appointed canton, which Israel will be divided up into. So this is the work of the saints to restore Israel and to destroy the Gentiles. Now, one of the reasons why Europe resists is that they will be so opposed to what Jesus is actually doing. And it's writings like this, these uh, Left Behind series, which are so taken off, 80 million copies sold, lapped up by the evangelicals and even the Roman Catholic churches going into it. But the thing is, they read, those that read these books learn that an antichrist is going to come, who's going to appear shortly after armed forces from the north have been miraculously destroyed in the land of Israel. And a king comes who makes a covenant with the Jews and causes the Jews to turn back to the law of Moses and even is building a temple there. And he's claiming to be the Lord Jesus, etc., etc. So when Jesus does the things which we know he's going to do, then Christendom will say, this is Antichrist. It's got to be resisted. And so God's judgments will be poured out in the words of, of Daniel chapter 7. The fourth beast has got to be totally destroyed for all that they have done to God's people in the past. And so uh, an almighty work of judgment there. And so nations were given two choices, submit or perish. We know what the everlasting gospel is. Revelation 14 tells us, fear God and give glory to the creator, the one that made heavens and the earth, the sea, the fountains of war. How appropriate for today's uh, evolutionary um, world that refuses to acknowledge that God is the creator, that Israel is God's people. So they begin the choice, submit, and many nations do, we know, but others resist to the bitter end. They are no more. Great Babylon falls. And then when that happens, when all resistance is ended, then the gathering of Israel will have been completed and the kingdom will begin in earnest. There will be no more war. Jesus will be king over the whole world from Zion. Twelve disciples looking after the Israel's affairs and the saints looking after the world's affairs. And so Eden will be restored. Man and nature will live in harmony. Deserts disappear, earth bringing forth crops that we can only imagine, temple in Jerusalem, the centre of worship, and the earth a theocracy, God, the Lord Jesus, the saints, Israel, Abraham's other children blessed in the kingdom, and then finally the Gentile nations will make up the millennial age. So indeed, all nations will be blessed in Abraham and his seed. And we can see why God has chosen to put Israel where he did the meeting point between Europe and Asia and Africa, so that nations in the kingdom age can come from Europe, from Asia, from Africa on foot on their pilgrimages, then come by sea from America, Canada, South America. They can come from Australia, New Zealand and worship the king so God has deliberately placed them there, the centre of the future world. And we have to rejoice, brothers and sisters, 
at this wonderful plan and purpose that God has. And so we see this glorious hope which was set before us. These aren't academic things. These are real things, brothers and sisters. The word of God is a real thing. It's about real politics and the kingdom of God. When man's rule will be ended, the kingdom of men will come to an end and the kingdom of God will be established. And our hope is to be there with the faithful of all ages to help the Lord Jesus in this great work. As Revelation ends, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. And we pray in the mercy of God, we may be accounted worthy to partake of the tree of life and live forever. Because we know in the kingdom age, there won't be anything that defines, won't be any abomination or making a lie. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will be granted immortality at that stage. And the nations will be under subjection, will be controlled until the end of the millennium. And they will then face their own judgment. So we have this wonderful picture of a peaceful kingdom where they will not hurt nor destroy in my holy mountain. For all the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. That was God's plan and purpose before ever the foundations of the earth was laid. In the mercy of God, we'll have a role to play in bringing that about in enjoying the wonderful blessings of the kingdom age. And then after the second resurrection, when there will be only immortals, mortality will totally disappear and God will be all in all. What a wonderful hope, brothers and sisters. Our Lord Jesus is at the door. Let us hold fast. Let's not let go. And in the mercy of God, may we be with him in that day. Thank you. Well, it's a glorious subject, brothers and sisters. God will save his people. And we sang, didn't we? For Zion's sake, I will not rest, saith God, nor hold my peace until Jerusalem be blessed and Judah's sorrows cease. And this is God's plan and purpose for the earth. It centers around the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and raising his brothers and sisters and gathering his brothers and sisters to him, making them immortal and endued with all power and understanding and wisdom that they might take control of this earth. And for his nation of Israel and for the Gentile nations, they will be educated in the ways of God and will reflect glory to God. And then the whole earth will be a wonderful paradise. And this is what we're longing for, isn't it, brothers and sisters? When man's sin that mars the earth will be taken away. And in the mercy of God, we may be there helping the Lord Jesus in establishing the kingdom and 
teaching the nations the right ways and the bringing glory and blessing to God. Now, the subject of how all this is going to happen, uh, how the saints are going to be prepared at Sinai and how Israel is going to be saved, is a matter which isn't dealt with very much nowadays. And from the clarity that there was in the days of Brother Thomas and um, Brother Roberts to today, we've got a lot of confusion and conflicting ideas. And I'm hoping that with this rather detailed study, we shall come to find out the wonderful sequence that the Bible unfolds for those that seek his coming. So what we're going to deal with, first of all, is preparing the saints at Sinai. And it's a big subject, and there'll be a lot of references on the slides. And uh, I know some of you take pictures, or I certainly do take pictures of the slides. And one of the problems is to know when the brother is going to change to another slide. You know, when is that slide full? So you'll notice in the bottom of this screen, uh, an inverted triangle. Uh, and when the screen fills to wherever the triangle is, that's when I'm about to change to another side, slide. So I hope that helps. And also God willing, the slides will be put up on the video we put up on the uh, Christadelphian video site. So be able to watch it again. But if anybody wants copies of the slides, um, I'll put my email in at the end. Just send me an email and I'll happily share them with you. So what we're going to be looking at, just to give us some structure for our study today, we're going to look at an overall time frame in which we can hang together the various aspects of both the talks. And then in this first part, look at a more detailed time frame concerning the return of the Lord Jesus and when the judgment takes place and the Battle of Armageddon. Not that we can put dates to it, but it gives us a time frame. And then look at who, when, where we're going to be raised to judgment, questions that arise when we think of the judgment seat. And then practical things, you know, how are the living gathered to the judgment? Um, what is the basis for uh, being judged? What happens to the accepted and rejected? Um, one that concerns many families, you know, what about the young children of believers? And uh, we're going to take a look at the work for the saints at Sinai before ever the Lord Jesus is revealed to the nation of Israel. So let's just start off with uh, an overall time frame, which covers more than we're going to be dealing with, but gives us a basis which we can as it were, fit the pieces of the jigsaw too. So I've made three headings, one saints, matters concerning Israel, and matters concerning biblical nations, the nations that the Bible deals with. Uh, and the first, I believe, before ever Jesus is revealed to the nations is that he calls away the saints to judgment. It is the time of resurrection. Uh, for Israel, it will be the time that Ezekiel talks about, dwelling in peace and safety. And while the judgment takes place, there is the acceptance or rejection of the saints. 
And the Bible makes it clear there is a work before ever the Lord Jesus is revealed to the world, the Elijah work, paralleling with John the Baptist's work before Jesus was revealed to the nation of Israel, and a work of instructing the Arab nations, who, as we shall see, have a role to play in the kingdom. And then following that will be this invasion of Israel, what we call the Gogi invasion, based on Ezekiel chapter 38. And for Israel, devastating consequences, Jerusalem wrested from them, two-thirds of the nation cut off. When we think of the population of Israel today, that's a vast number. This is a Holocaust uh, repeating again. And that's the signal for Christ and the saints who are now immortalized to come up to save Israel, the march of the rainbowed angel. And the Battle of Armageddon takes place, which destroys the enemies of Israel. Gog is defeated with all her companions. And to begin with, the kingdom is established in Israel. Um, meanwhile, there is a regrouping of the European nations in opposition to what is happening in Israel. And for the saints, they are the warriors, they are the preachers, they are the rulers who begin their work of calling the Jews scattered around the world back to their land. A time of great difficulty for Israel, scattered Israel, because there's going to be time of war an opposition in Europe, a time when, in the words of Daniel chapter 7, the fourth beast is slain and the other three beasts have their power taken away. And step by step, nations submit themselves to the king in Zion until eventually all nations submit and then the kingdom is established worldwide. So that's the general time frame. And I want to look at a more specific time frame concerning the events surrounding the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I believe that the Lord Jesus comes back in secret to his household as say, the resurrection takes place. And then sometime after that, there is the Gogian invasion when Israel is broken as a nation. And then sometime after that is the Battle of Armageddon when Christ and the saints come and save Israel. And I'm going to suggest a 10-year period from Christ's return in secret to the household to his revealing a mighty power at the Battle of Armageddon. That's based on Leviticus 23, and we'll look at that in a moment. And then the kingdom fully established, a time of warfare, especially in Europe, I would allocate a period of 40 years, which would make a jubilee period, so quite an appropriate uh, span from his return to the kingdom fully established and the millennial reign of a thousand years beginning, uh, a 50-year jubilee period to that commencement. And it is important that we have a good grasp on these things, because if we believe that we won't face judgment until after the Gogin invasion, then if that is not the case, if Christ comes back first before the Gogin invasion, then we'll be caught unawares. So it is important. 
So it hinges on an understanding of Leviticus chapter 23. So let's just turn to Leviticus and chapter 23, which is dealing with the feasts of Israel. And it comes to the seventh month, which is the final series of feasts for Israel. And get me a moment, chapter 23 of Leviticus. Uh, when we come to verse uh, 24, uh, we read of the instructions for this last period. So the, on the first day of the month, we read of in verse 24, on the seventh month, in the first day of the month, ye shall have a Sabbath. So this is a special Sabbath, um, a memorial of blowing of trumpets and holy convocation. Do no servile work therein, but ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh. So that was what Israel had to do. Um, first of this seventh month, uh, there was this uh, blowing of trumpets, a special Sabbath, a gathering together of Israel, and an offering made by fire. And then that was followed, verse 27, on the 10th day of the month was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the most solemn day in Israel's assembly, when they again had to gather together, no work, a holy gathering, and there was various ceremonies, the um, offerings that had to be made on that day, a special Sabbath day for them. And then following that special period of the 10th day of the month, on the 15th day of the month, began the eighth day festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, Sokoth. Again, special Sabbaths on the beginning and the last days, and the whole period was for them to dwell in booths. So let's see how we can draw out from that a time frame for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we look at the first day, this memorial of blowing of trumpets. Now, at the beginning of every month, a trumpet was blown, but it's clear from the detail that is given to us that this is more than just a trumpet blast to announce the beginning of the month. This was a continuous blowing. So this was something special. And of course, that reminds us of Paul's words in Corinthians that the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. And I think this is quite appropriate to think that this is a pointer to the resurrection of the saints and a holy convocation, the gathering of the dead and living saints, I believe at Sinai, will be the biggest convocation, the biggest gathering there of believers there has ever been. And it will be a time of preparation, a time of dedication, an offering made by fire to Yahweh. And that indeed is so applicable to the bestowing of everlasting life upon the faithful saints. So I believe here we have in the events of the first day of the seventh month, a figure of the gathering of the believers together and their change to immortality. And then in the sequence of events was this 
very special day, the Day of Atonement, when the sins of Israel were remembered again and atoned for. They were covered. The scapegoat bore them away. And to me, it is appropriate as a symbol, a figure of the redemption of Israel. The Messiah who came to bear away their sins uh, comes back to save them. Uh, and they enter into the new covenant, uh, offering made by fire, the ram without blemish. Now, if we apply a day for a year, then that gives us a 10-year period between the first event and the second event. And then four days later, they were preparing for the Feast of Tabernacles, the 15th day. This was a week's Bible school, a week plus eight days, where they could concentrate on the blessings of God. Uh, and I believe that we have to um, see in this a preparation for that day of rest that Paul talks about in Hebrews, when the Sabbath day of rest will dawn. Now, we have to use a different time scale here. We have four days later when they then prepare for this keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles with a special Sabbath of rest. And I believe we have to apply not a day for a year, but a day for 10 years. You see, the Feast of Tabernacles lasted for eight days. Now, to fit the figure, it would have to last a thousand days. Or if we have this multiplication of a year for 10 years, it would have to last 100 days. Well, that, that's impossible, isn't it, for a feast to be kept that long. Wouldn't be practical for Israel. So God uses this eight day. An eight day is a cycle of a week and a day beyond that which be li lies beyond the Sabbath of rest. And there's a wonderful point of forward to the coming kingdom. So I, I believe that if we just map this out, we have the Feast of Tabernacle Trumpets on the first day, the Day of Atonement on the 10th day, the Feast of Tabernacles on the 15th day, and the feast ends on the 22nd of the month, eight days later. And then there is a solemn assembly uh, following that. Then there's a wonderful prefiguration, the return to the household, the Battle of Armageddon and the salvation of Israel, the Day of Atonement for them. The Gogin invasion having taken place some time before that. And then the kingdom fully established, uh, the uh, marking the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles and the celebration of the kingdom um, the, in, prefigured in the eight-day festival. And then followed that a solemn assembly when at the end of the millennium, the second resurrection, and all will be immortal. And again, a wonderful gathering of saints from the first resurrection, saints from the second resurrection, when God will be all in all, and God's plan and purpose will be completed with the earth. So a 10-year period there, I believe, and a 40-year period there to the kingdom fully established. Now, I can't be dogmatic on that, but it does seem to fit. So a busy period of 10 years, I believe, while 
the saints are being prepared. Jesus is hidden from the world. And so the first knowledge of Jesus' return will be the resurrection, the anastasis, the standing up again. And Brother Thomas written a booklet on anastasis, um, the standing up again, a three-stage process, uh, a seed body, he describes it, a sprout body, and a raised body. And he takes 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, the cycle that the Apostle Paul uses of sprouting and growing and bearing fruit, not to represent our bodies being planted in the dust of the grave when we die, but the whole lot is a prefiguration of this process of anastasis, the change from a mortal body, the dead are raised in mortality, they are tried and they are then changed to immortality. Uh, and that is this process. And Daniel chapter 10 is a fascinating chapter. I haven't time to look at it, but it indicates to us that this process of resurrection is something which doesn't take place in just a short period. It's uh, quite a process. Uh, and when we think of it, that in Bible times, any Bible resurrections are, are people who've been dead either that day or Lazarus, uh, four days dead, the Lord Jesus, three days dead. What we're looking at is people who've disappeared into dust millennia ago. And so it is a different process than that when the miracles that Jesus performed uh, and happened in Old Testament time miracles. This will be the first time since Eden that from dust of the earth will be recreated human beings. But unlike Adam, this was his first existence. These will be men and women who have existed in the past, brought to life again, because God has stored in his memory their DNA uh, so that their bodies can be recreated to be like they were. And their memory is stored in God's memory bank, re-implanted into those minds, so that the minds of the believers will be as they were when they died. So uh, a wonderful process and God has is so wonderful in how he works these things. Now obviously there are problems. My mother died of Alzheimer's and knowing nothing and it was clear that her mind would have to be unwound as it were until she was at a position of before she was so confused and we have to say how thankful we are it's all in God's hands not our hands. And so believers long dead, raised to life, recreated from the dust of the earth, I believe, uh, will be able to stand for judgment. And the final stages of resurrection, the change to an immortal body, can take place. So let's fill out those details. It's clear that uh, judgment begins at the house of God. And if you first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner 
appear. And I believe this is hinting to us that there is a sequence of judgments. One, there is the judgment of the household. Um, we shall all appear, stand before him. But then there are the sinners, and that covers the nation of Israel, who are astray from God and have to, through the events that are going to unfold before them, will have a change of heart and change them to be accepted before God. And the sinners, the Gentiles, they too have to face their uh, judgment. God's going to have a series of outpouring of judgments, first upon the household, which I believe will be at Sinai, and we'll look at that in a moment. For Israel, it will be in the land. For those who are scattered from the land, their judgment will be uh, as they fight to get out and return to Israel. And I believe, and we shall see, that they'll be brought back via Sinai before being allowed to go into the land. The Gentiles, those Gentile nations who have invaded Israel, well, their judgment will be in Israel itself, in the land, as they are destroyed. Um, but for the other nations, especially Europe, who resists, as we shall see, then their judgment will take place in Europe itself. So these are passages, um, we're going to look at uh, those passages for Sinai, uh, many references that tell us that Israel is going to be invaded and destroyed as a nation, um, a reaping of the harvest, as it were. And then for the Gentiles, we have the references in Revelation of Armageddon, the sheaves being threshed, which Joel picks up in Revelation uh, 17. Uh, and 18 and 19 give us the greater details. So there is much confusion about where the judgment is going to take place. Some say it's going to take place at Jerusalem, but if the judgment in my sequence is correct, then uh, Jerusalem is going to be invaded by an enemy of Israel. So that does make sense. Sinai makes sense. So Let's have a look and see, you know, let's look, ask a few questions. When does it have, take place? Where does it take place? Who are the responsible for judgment? Where will the judge be raised for judgment? How are the living called? How will we be judged? What happens to the rejected? What happens to the accepted? What about young children? So you can see it is a very extensive subject uh, for us. So let's uh, push on. So is the judgment before the Gogian invasion or is it after the Gogian invasion? I believe this is a very important matter because if it's before the Gogian invasion, then it can happen at any time. If it's after the Gogian invasion, then we shall know when it's going to happen because we will see it. And I believe all the evidence is it is before the Gogian invasion. And in fact, it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who really nails this, because in describing in Revelation chapter 16 of how the nations are prepared to be gathered to Armageddon, which is described in verse 14, how these frog spirits uh, gather the nations to the great battle of God Almighty. And then the Lord Jesus himself, he is the he that gathers them, uh, to the place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. It is between those verses 
that we have the return of the, of the Lord Jesus and the resurrection and the gathering of the saints. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So the Lord Jesus himself has made it clear that the, his coming back is to the household as a thief. And uh, there is judgment on the household. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because Jesus has got to come with saviors to rescue Israel. They have to be prepared beforehand. That's what the resurrection and the judgment is all about. The preparation of a body of people who can come and save God's people in their hour of greatest trial. And so I believe our historical understanding of these things has stood the test of time. And Sinai is the most fitting place because this is where Israel became God's people, God, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I believe this is a fitting place for spiritual Israel to become his kings and his priests. And remember that Israel became a kingdom of priests 40 years before they entered into their inheritance. So for the saints, they will become his nation, his people, his special people, before they receive their inheritance, their allotment in the tribal allotments in the kingdom age. So these are the three passages which tell us that, or points to the fact that Sinai is the place for judgment. So let's have a look at these three passages. So turn with me, if we're in Leviticus, just go back to, oh, go onwards, sorry, going the wrong way, to Deuteronomy chapter 33, that wonderful song, a blessing that Moses deals with the history and the for future for Israel. And he paints this picture at the beginning in verses two and three of Yahweh coming from Sinai, rise, rising up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. He came with 10,000s of saints. From his right hand went forth a fiery law for them. Yea, he loved the people. All his saints were in thy hand, and they sat down at thy feet. Everyone shall receive of thy words. Now, that wasn't a situation that occurred in the past. Israel rejected God's word. They perished in the wilderness, didn't they? And if it was referring to the past, then surely the song would have some reference to the Passover, to the Exodus, to the crossing of the Red Sea. But it doesn't. Moses is looking to the future. This is a blessing on the tribes which seem to be set in the future. And towards the end in verse 27, it speaks of the eternal God is thy refuge underneath of the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee and shall say, destroy them. Now, God did destroy Israel's enemies. But the language here is quite unusual. It's the only uh, place that it's been translated, the word has been translated eternal. It's the word that's normally translated east. The word God is Elohim. So we can translate that, the mighty ones of the east, thy refuge. And that, of course, is picked up in Revelation chapter 16, very relevant, the chapter that deals with this time period, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. 
So this is looking to the future when the way of the kings of the east uh, and the mighty ones of the east are going to be Israel's refuge because they're going to come and save Israel in their distress. Uh, and the uh, everlasting arms or the arms of the Olam, Young's literal translation, beneath the uh, arms age during, age lasting, here are being prepared the ones who are going to take Israel and enfold them in their arms and save them their hour of need and care for them throughout the millennial age. A wonderful picture, but it starts with uh, God coming from Sinai to save, to judge his people. Uh, and the next verse, so in verse 29, um, happy art thou, O Israel, um, thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee. Thou shalt tread upon their high places. And I believe that's so wonderfully applicable today. The world's media is so against Israel, tells lies about what happens there. BBC, one of the chief among them. And one day it will be made clear to the world that Israel are God's people. This is God's land. God has put them there. And they will be forced to confess that they were wrong about Israel. They were liars. So that's the Deuteronomy reference. The second one is Psalm, just turn to Psalm 68 and verse 17. Now, in the authorised version in Psalm 68 and verse 17, there's an awful lot of italicised words. So what I've put up there is knocking out all the italics. The chariots of God, 20,000, thousands of angels, the Lord among them, Sinai into the holy. Now, this was a psalm that was written by David to commemorate the bringing up of the ark to Jerusalem. And so very appropriate as an antitype of the antitypical ark, Christ and the bride, coming up to Jerusalem. Now, the RSV puts from Sinai into the holy place. Now, at the Exodus, they didn't go from Sinai into the holy place to Jerusalem. And interestingly, the authorised translation, thousands of angels, is a very poor translation. It isn't the word for angels at all. It's changed ones. So how appropriate for the saints who now in immortality, 20,000 thousands of changed ones, the Lord among them, and they're going from Sinai into the holy. So uh, again, another testimony that Sinai is the place from where they go and therefore will be the place where they are judged. And the next verse says, thou hast ascended on high, thou hast left captivity captive, thou hast given gifts for men. Um, Hebrew, gifts in the man. And this is quoted in Ephesians chapter four of the Lord Jesus. So again, it's indicating this is something pointing forward. It's the work of the Lord Jesus. He has led captivity captive for a multitude. He has brought life, abolished death, taken death captive and given the wonderful gift 
of divine nature. And the psalm continues, we won't look at it, but it looks of Israel's future salvation and their return to the land. So again, the setting is of a future event, not looking back to the past, but to the future. And then the third reference is Habakkuk, if we can find Habakkuk, one of those that easily gets lost, but I've put a marker in the space there. So Habakkuk 3 talks about God coming from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Um, Paran is linked with Sinai in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Uh, so he comes, uh, his glory covers the heavens, the earth is full of his praise, his brightness was as the light, he had horns coming out of his hands, that's a symbol of power, and there was a hiding of his power because he comes up in secret as it were. Before him went the pestilence, burning coals went at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. The everlasting mountains were scattered. Perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Now, again, that wasn't applicable uh, to Sinai, but very applicable as the nations are dealt with in judgment when Christ comes up to save his people and uses his power to save his people. So Timan is um, between the top of the Gulf of Aqaba and the bottom of the Dead Sea. It, it's near to Bosra. So that's part of coming up from Sinai through Bosra, Timan, and on to Jerusalem. So I hope that's established is that Sinai is the place for the judgment seat. So who are those responsible for judgment? Well, it's those who understand the gospel message. And Brother Roberts has these two lovely little quotes. Responsibility Godward only created by contact with divine law in a tangible unauthorized form. So those who are responsible are those who come in contact with the word of God have heard the gospel message. Another quote from True Principles and Uncertain Details, that men are responsible to the resurrection of condemnation who refuse subjection to the will of God when their circumstances are such as to leave them no excuse for their refusal. So he's saying those that have heard the gospel and have the opportunity to accept it but have chosen not to they will be responsible to judgment. Now, that then clearly excludes children and those lacking mental abilities to go to the judgment seat. And Brother Thomas in Anastasis says, uh, the light shining into the darkness and divinely attested makes sinners accountable and saints responsible. Uh, sinners accountable for judgment and sinners responsible for judgment. So those who have accepted the gospel message uh, will be gathered and those who know the gospel message and have chosen to reject it, they will be gathered to show them the folly of their actions. And I believe it include, will include people and leaders in the day of Jesus. There are just three references. Let's just take the middle one, um, John chapter 12. 
to John in chapter 12 and verses 44 to uh, 50 is uh, Jesus and in opposition to the Pharisees um, and he cries out um, in verse 44, he that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but him that sent me. He that seeth me, seeth not me, but him that sent me. I'm the light that's come into the world. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So the last day is referring to the day of judgment. So um, there will be those in Jesus' day who heard the gospel message, turned their backs. Many we know uh, on the day of Pentecost did repent and accepted, but uh, there will be judgment for those who disobey and don't come. Again, a lot of the Jews in Old Testament times, well, uh, and throughout the uh, um, last two millennia, um, Brother Thomas, uh, Brother Robert, sorry, and Christmas says, well, I think they're wise words. The national suffering of the Jews in dispersion and privation are evidently a full discharge of the responsibility arising from national election. So he's saying, well, the Jews have received their punishments, that uh, they won't be raised to judgment. Uh, God has seen to it, judgment has already come upon them. So where will the dead be raised for judgment? Well, one would think, well, where they were buried, but well, many of them were burned or eaten alive or wild animals in the arenas of Rome. Some were buried at sea and uh, most are long gone, turned into dust. Um, and so I'm going to propose that because at death for each one of us, God stores our DNA um, and our memories that God can raise from any dust their bodies. And so I believe it will be appropriate for the vast majority, I'm not saying for all, but for those who have been long dead to be raised from dust at Sinai. And that would avoid long dead saints born and lived in a world so alien from ours with aeroplanes and motor cars and all the 21st century to avoid all having to face that. But it's merely a system. I haven't any uh, scriptural evidences I can put there. But for the living, well, if we're in John, uh, if we just go back to chapter 11, the occasion of the raising of Lazarus, in verse 28, we have uh, Mary calling her uh, sister, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Martha calling her sister, Mary, saying, the master is come and calleth for thee. And she arises and goes to him. 
Now, again, I am just making suggestions. I'll be very interested to hear your comments. But if a recently dead brother or sister that we've recently put into the grave suddenly came to the meeting room, if meetings have recommenced or to our homes, we would know beyond a shadow of doubt that the master had come. And going to the master is not going to be optional. We have to go. So how do we get there? Well, um, there's a lovely passage in Isaiah chapter 26. It says, come my people, enter thou into thy chambers, shut thy doors about thee, hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, Yahweh cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And again, I'm going to make a suggestion that the saints are going to be called away from the judgments that God is pouring out upon the earth. If we go back to the time of the Exodus and the plagues upon Egypt, 10 plagues, the nation of Israel suffered the first three plagues, but they didn't suffer the last seven plagues, only they were felt by Egypt. And I believe that what is happening here is a pointing forward to what is going to happen. Now, COVID might be the first global plague that God has poured out, in which case there's got to be another two plagues that we can expect to see, global catastrophes, financial, whatever they're going to be, we don't know, but terrible things have got to affect the world. And then I believe the saints are going to be called away um, so that we don't face the more and more and more plagues which are going to be sent until the earth is reeling under the judgments that God is sending. And so we have to be gathered. But how we get to Sinai, we don't know. Will it be like Philip, they're caught up by the spirit and we're there? Or will it be by natural means? Because by the time of the third outpouring of plagues upon the earth, People won't be very worried what's happening to all these Christadelphians who are disappearing. Uh, maybe by natural means we are taken there. We don't know. It doesn't matter. It lies in God's hands. What is important is um, how will we judged. So we ask who will be the judge? Will we have to go? Uh, and what is the basis for judgment? Well, we know very clearly that the judge is the Lord Jesus. As Paul um, said that uh, he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which ordained of God to be judge of quick and dead. I think that was Peter, wasn't it? Um, and Romans, Paul in Romans, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. So the ultimate uh, judge is going to be the Lord Jesus and in Corinthians makes it clear we must all appear, there's no exception, before the judgment seat of Christ. And everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And uh, Romans 14, again, you know, 
we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone shall give an account of himself to God. Interesting word, that's account. It's the word logos. Um, Byron says an account to account, um, one gives by word of mouth. There, very interestingly, an answer or explanation in reference to judgment to give or render an account. So it sets it in the, a court scene and giving an account. And Peter says, who shall give account, picks up that word to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. So is judgment optional? No, it is not optional. And it's not just for the accepted. Um, there is a bit of misunderstanding uh, about this phrase, one shall be taken and one left used in Matthew 24 and uh, Luke chapter 17, but that's something applying to AD 70 and being taken actually means to be received near and to be left is to be actually sent away. Um, so it, it's... it's um, is uh, not applying, all have to go, good and bad, to the judgment seat. And Romans and Daniel make it clear, both classes are judged. So what is the basis of judgment? Well, turn to that reading that we took in Ezekiel chapter 33. And so it is an accumulation of pluses and minuses on the balance, as it were, and if it's plus, more pluses, then accepted, more minuses, then rejected. Well, that's not what scripture says. And wonderfully, Ezekiel, who tells us of the kingdom age, the temple and all that, in three passages, gives us the basis of God's coming judgment. So we just look at very briefly at chapter 33. What all these three passages, and well, reading them at your leisure, what is saying it is we will be judged on where we are at the end of our journey. And uh, verse uh, 10 of the chapter in the authorised version, I think the ESV made it a bit crisper, but I've got the revised version. Truly our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we pine away for them. We are sinners, we are worthy of death. How then shall we live? Well, there is a way of escape from sin and death. And what he goes through, and no need to go in detail because we can remember it, I'm sure. But what he's saying is that if the sinner repents, then he will live. If the righteous man turns away from his righteousness and sins, then he will die. Uh, and that simple explanation, it is where we are when the Lord Jesus comes back. Are we for Christ? Or have we walked away from him? Have the cares of this world overtaken us? And that will be the basis of our judgment, not only of our judgment, but of the judgments of the nations. You see, when we come to um, Matthew chapter 25, he gives us three parables. The first, the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. The wise had made preparation. They knew that they had to illuminate the Lord when he returned and escort him to the wedding feast. And they made adequate preparation. Though they fell asleep, they had got oil there so they would have light. 
the foolish hadn't made preparation. They had spent their time in looking after themselves, unlike the wise. And the second parable reinforces that, one of the talents, that we have to make every use of the talents that God has given us, not for our own benefit, but for the Lord's benefit. And then the third parable, which it says clearly is judgment on the nations, the nations will too be judged on how they have treated Israel. And that's why it's so fascinating, just as we're on the eve of the coming of the Lord Jesus, we're seeing this great change among the Arab nations, that those nations which are going to be blessed in the kingdom age are turning from years and years of hostility from Israel, are turning from their wicked ways, and are now beginning to bless Israel so that God can invite them into the kingdom. And, is, and Europe is increasingly getting hostile to Israel. And we know that God's judgments will be poured upon them. So it's not a matter of an instant. It's a matter of life and death. So I believe that the judgment seat can take several years. There's a lot to be sorted out. And beyond the acceptance and rejection for those who are accepted, I believe that there will be a period of adjustment. If we, I draw the parallel with engagement when two couples seek to unite as it were in one and they have to get to know each other and there's an awful lot to be sorted out before the actual marriage and so I believe within this 10-year period prior to the saints being immortalized and going forth to save will not be only just be the resurrection from the dead but the standing before the judge and sorting out matters, and then a period of adjustment, and then immortalization, and then some work to be done before going to save Israel. These are events that have to happen. So what happens to the rejected? Well, those that have been raised from the dead will presumably return to the dust. Those that are alive at the return of the Lord Jesus may be sent back to their own countries, to testify that the Lord Jesus is back and coming and they will perish when God's troubles and judgments are poured out upon the earth. For the rejected there is shame and contempt and as Paul says tribulation and anguish upon every soul that doth evil. So brothers and sisters let us think about these things. We don't want to be in that category, do we? And in the mercy of God, because we believe we're going to be judged not on what we've done in the past, but how we are now when the Lord comes, that gives us hope. We can repent, we can change. And so for those who are accepted, there is that final stage of anastasis, that change to immortality, something which is beyond our comprehension, something beyond our dreams, but that's the, what God has promised for those that love and fear him. And then the saints can be brought into the knowledge of what is going to happen. You see, the Apostle Paul in, in got to Revelation chapter 10, the revealing of the seven thunders, which is all the detail of how the kingdom is going to be established. He was about to write them all down, but the angel said, no, don't write them down. That's for the future. 
And so this will be the occasion when immortalized John will be able to say, well, this is what I was going to write. This is the plan of campaign that we're going to follow to establish the kingdom of God. And in addition to that, there is an Elijah work um, of preparation uh, for the Jews and the Arabs for the return of the Lord Jesus. Now, finally on this matter, what about our young people? Well, if I'm correct in seeing a 10-year period between the return to the household and the going forth to save Israel, then even if a child is born at Sinai at the judgment seat, there will be nine or so before the saints go forth uh, into warfare. And I believe, just as at the Exodus, God will take care of the young people. Angelic hands will care for them until the time after Armageddon when Israel is established as God's blessed people in the land, then I believe that they will be adopted into an Israelitish family, have the privilege of living at the centre of the kingdom and having their opportunity during their mortal lifetime of an immortality at the end of the millennium when there shall be the second resurrection. So uh, let's, uh, time is uh, going on, but let, let's just turn to, if we're in Ezekiel, let's just turn on to that reference there uh, and look at the others that we measure. But uh, Ezekiel 47 and verses 22 and 23 speaks of this kingdom age time when it shall come to pass that ye shall divide it by the land by lot unto you and to the strangers that sodden among you, which shall beget children among you, and they shall be unto you as born in the country among the children of Israel. They shall have their inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall come to pass that in what tribe the stranger sojourneth, there shall he give him his inheritance, saith the Lord Yahweh. So I believe that not only our children, but others like the mixed multitude that came up in the Exodus, others will want to live in Israel. But I believe our children, our young children will be part of these adopted into Israel um, and having their opportunity to uh, have immortality like their parents uh, at the end of the millennium. Well, just very briefly, I, I move this from the second part to the first part. Um, perhaps I shouldn't have done, but um, just bear with me. Uh, I just want to very briefly encapsulate this Elijah work, which Malachi speaks of. You might want to turn to Malachi. It's the last book in uh, our Bible. It's not the last book in the Hebrew Bible, of course. But uh, Malachi ends with this picture of an Elijah work, lest uh, Israel's heart, Israel, be um, consumed. And it involves the law of Moses. And I believe that this work of Elijah is to take them back to their Mosaic roots. Um, perhaps we should read it first. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, the statutes and judgments. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. He, Elijah, will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So, the interesting thing is that it says 
remember the law of Moses. That's what Elijah was skilled in. And his coming back is to be sent to a remnant in Israel to take them back to their Mosaic roots. Um, and that's going to happen before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's the Battle of Armageddon. Same word that's used in Malachi chapter 3 of John coming before the appearance of Jesus. And the word dreadful there, the same word as Joel chapter 2, which speaks of this time, same time period. And what's Elijah's work? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, we go back to Mount Carmel. On Mount Carmel, Elijah prayed, hear me, O Yahweh, hear me, that this people may know that thou art Yahweh Elohim, and thou hast turned their heart back again. And that's what Elijah did. He turned their heart, set up the schools of the prophets. And that's what Elijah has got to come back and do, prepare the people for the Messiah that would come. And who are the fathers? Well, Abraham. Would the average Israeli today recognise Abraham? No. Would Abraham recognise the average Israeli of today as his children? No. They do not walk in faith. So this is a work that's got to be done beforehand um, to prepare a remnant in order that they might be um, prepared and changed and ready to accept the Lord Jesus. And I believe this work fits in in this time period between Christ's return and the Gogian invasion. And he'll be sent to the Jews living in Israel. Now, on the, what the world calls West Bank, Judea and Samaria, uh, are many settlements. I'll just go to the larger map. The, the darker shaded areas are lands which are under the Oslo Accords, are under Palestinian control. But all the lighter areas are under Israeli control. And you can see that's quite a lot and little tongues coming into the uh, areas of A and B, the C area, the Israeli area. And in the C area, this is where so many settlements have been set up. And these settlements mainly are religious Zionists who are looking for Messiah to come. They study the Bible, they teach their children the Bible, and these will be fertile ground for Elijah to take them back to the law of Moses, get rid of all the um, rabbinical sayings and all the clutter that they associated, get them back to really understanding the law of Moses and the events that unfold will then bring them to the Lord Jesus, just as I did in New Testament times. Um, it was based upon Israel's understanding the law of Moses, that the Messiah was the Lord Jesus, and the events that will unfold will show that to them. And parallel to that, as I've already hinted, is this secondary work of not only uh, working, preparing, uh, Israel, but preparing the Arab nations who are beginning to turn to Israel. And the Abraham Accords are this process whereby God's, Abraham's other children are going to be acceptable to God, are going to have a prominent place in the kingdom. Um, not all of them are descended from Abraham, but 
they will be accounted just as we aren't children of Abraham, but through baptism can be accounted. So Arab nations, uh, even if they're not descended from Abraham, if they're favorable to Israel, will be accounted worthy of a place in the kingdom. And Abraham himself could be take part in that work. We think of, you know, in the past Old Testament times, immortal angels worked incognito, Old Testament times, so it can happen again uh, as they work. And so here we come to an end. Um, there is a logical sequence, there's a resurrection, call for the saints to judgment, larger work, then Israel is invaded, and Christ and the saints come to save the Jews, battle of Armageddon, Israel saved, war takes place on the Gentiles. And so uh, there is a logic and a pattern. So uh, if you want copies of the slides, that's my um, website there. Thank you.